Many Christians struggle with the concept of natural selection. Worse, many evolutionists tout it as direct proof of evolution. What are we to make of it? Can we account for it in a created but fallen universe? Would it have been in operation if Adam had not rebelled against God? Hence, if there was no struggle in death? Before we answer those questions, we have to define what natural selection is. It is a simple concept, really, and it does not take long to understand that some organisms thrive in certain environments while others don't. This leads to some organisms producing more offspring than others. That's it. There's nothing more to the concept. We do not believe that it can explain the common ancestry of all species, as Darwin believed but it can lead to changes within species over time. But nature cannot do anything. It is not selecting. Nature cannot think. The word nature comes from the Latin word natura, which refers to some innate character of a person or thing. The Greeks and Romans, as well as many Europeans in the Middle Ages, attempted to personify nature. Hence, we get the phrase mother nature. So in one sense, it might be said to be referencing pagan gods, but in another sense, we are not. We simply don't have a better phrase in English to denote things that happen all by themselves. We say things are natural when they comport to the laws of science and probability. But who wants to say that? The shortcut natural selection is easier to understand and easy to use. Early on, people were not satisfied with Darwin's turn of phrase. A contemporary Herbert Spencer invented a replacement term, survival of the fittest, but this is also problematic. First, how do you define the most fit? Is it the biggest, the strongest, the smartest, or maybe the one with the best eyesight or fastest reflexes? No, 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 no. It is none of these things. You see, natural selection has nothing to do with the struggle for existence. The word fit has a specific definition. The organism that produces the most offspring is, by definition, the fittest. It's true that dead things cannot reproduce, but death is not required here. Reproductive output can be affected without killing things off, without disease and suffering, and without Darwin's struggle for existence. I'm going to give you some examples. But before we get to that, let me just mention that, in his later writings, Darwin admitted that he put too much emphasis on natural selection as an agent of change and turned to other, more hotly disputed ideas, like sexual selection and kin selection. Most people don't realize that the patriarch of natural selection actually got cold feet about it before he died. Natural Selection in Paradise Written by Dr. Robert Carter Natural selection is not about death, nor is it about survival of the fittest. In one sense, it should be called differential reproduction, but that term is not nearly as eloquent as the one Darwin chose. Darwin used life-and-death examples throughout his writing, but this is wrong, and I believe he knew it. He reasoned that, over long periods, and despite the ever-changing environment, even slightly beneficial variations would slowly grow in frequency. The reason for this is not necessarily because some things die and some live. Slight differences don't guarantee life or death. Instead, they affect the probability of successful reproduction and an organism does not have to be dead to have fewer offspring. So Darwin's use of death as an analogy has colored the thinking of people ever since. But if we are simply talking about reproducing organisms, 
suddenly we have a means of creating change in the pre-fall, pre-sin world. If you carefully read the creation account, you will notice that there are two categories of living things. One the Bible calls living creatures, or the nefesh kaya. They are the soulish things, or things that breathe. This roughly corresponds to land vertebrate in modern taxonomy, although I would also include whales, fish, and birds in the definition. The other group of things are not technically alive in the Hebrew way of thinking. This includes bacteria, plants, and protists. The Bible does not say that these things did not die. In fact, plants, and not just their fruit, were designated as food for the animals in Genesis chapter 1, so we know they died. What we're getting at is that natural selection was operating on them from the very beginning. But there is also room for natural selection to operate as the nephesh creatures reproduced to meet God's command to fill the seas in Genesis chapter 1 verse 22 and the land in Genesis 1 28. So let's consider the example of Jacob. In Genesis chapter 30, he kept breeding streaked and speckled sheep from the all-white flock. He changed the coat color of his flock, and he did not have to kill the white sheep in order to do it. See, the white coat color is dominant in sheep, which means that the dark phenotype can remain hidden within a population. But where do these hidden traits come from? Today, mutations play a strong role, and most mutations are bad. But there are several ways of generating variation within mutation. First, God would have front-loaded his creation with genetic variation. Most of the variation within humans today is probably created diversity that made it through the flood's bottleneck. Second, during reproduction, chromosomal recombination shuffles genes. This means new gene combinations can come into being that never existed before. God could have easily front-loaded the genomes of his creatures with hidden information that would only be revealed later. Third, when two organisms that are closely related mate, hidden traits can come to the fore. In Jacob's example, by breeding a ram and a ewe who both carry the recessive dark-colored gene, he knew that many dark-colored lambs would be produced. And fourth, certain DNA changes might be pre-programmed, thus not all changes could be called mutations. An example of a pre-programmed change includes the so-called jumping genes, or retrotransposons. These are short sections of DNA that can pop out of the genome and insert themselves somewhere else. They are important. One type jumps around in the human brain during embryonic development, affecting the behavior of different types of brain cells. It is entirely possible that they could contribute to diversification within the created kinds after creation. And fifth, DNA methylation and histone acetylation are environmentally induced phenomena where certain genes are turned on or off, according to the needs of the organism. This is part of a rapidly developing field called epigenetics, and it is a serious challenge to Darwinism. There is even mounting evidence that these methylation patterns can be inherited. Also, when a woman is pregnant with a female baby, that baby's ovaries and egg cells develop quite early. Thus, the environment of the grandmother can lead to the switching on or off of genes in the mother, the child, and the eggs that will be used to produce grandchildren who will not be born until many years later. Once we have a way to generate new variation, and there is every reason to think that this would have happened naturally, there's that word again. In an unfallen world, we only lack one thing for natural selection to operate, a changing environment. 
Assume for a second that Adam did not rebel against God and that death and suffering never entered the world. What would things be like? Would they be static and never changing? Would rivers not carry sediment to the sea and producing sandbars and perhaps filling in shallow estuaries or ponds? Would elephants not tear down trees and open up sunlit patches, a new niche? As humans multiplied and spread out on the earth, would pristine environments maintain their species' diversity as we started squishing the moss underfoot, cutting down branches for rain shelters, and plucking off fruit and flowers to eat? There is every reason to think that there would have been some environmental variability in an unfallen world. This might be on a small scale, but new niches will be opening up, and the species that can exploit those new niches will fill them but not necessarily all the individuals of those species. The ones that do the filling will be the ones most suited to the new environment because these individuals will naturally produce more offspring. So new species could easily appear as the genes within a large population are segregated among the two new populations. But natural selection also operates when the environment does not change. Consider a single species of oak tree that can spread out on a mountain. Imagine there is a river and marshy areas at the base of the mountain, but that the heights are rather dry. Now imagine that there is a diversity of genes within the species that help the trees tolerate wetter or drier soils. Let's say that the average tree lives for a hundred years and is immediately replaced by a sapling. What will happen over time? The trees on the top of the mountain will be faced with a general lack of water, but some of the trees carry genes that help them cope with this. They will grow large and full and produce many acorns. The other trees will still live, but they will not grow as fast or produce as many acorns. In this scenario, all trees are relatively healthy. Tree death is not precluded in our model unfallen world. They could be aging out, or maybe they live to a hundred years on average before getting eaten by an elephant. But let's think about the gene pool a thousand years, ten tree generations later. It will be chock full of genes that help the trees cope with dry roots, and the other genes might even be eliminated completely. The trees themselves might even look different from those of a thousand years before. But it's not about the trees. It's about the acorns. The trees are replaced by the acorns that are available, and whoever produces the most acorns wins. But different things are happening at the bottom of the mountain. The trees there have a surfeit of water and the trees that like dry roots will not grow as fast or produce as many acorns. Maybe the oak starts to develop buttress roots, as so many trees in swampy areas do. Thus, not only does the gene pool change, so might also the morphology of the tree. So, change over time is part of the creation model. There are many other theoretical examples that could be used. We could also talk about seasonal copepods, a small shrimp-like thing that lives in the ocean, who lives for a season, spawn, and then the eggs sink to the bottom of the sea. We could talk about bacteria living in a warm little pond, some reproducing quickly and some reproducing more slowly. We could also discuss all sorts of scenarios that involve differential reproduction. Note that these are not life-and-death examples. We don't need lions to chase gazelles across the African plains to explain natural selection in gazelles. We just need time plus genetic and environmental variation. Living things do everything else as they naturally produce. There is another agent of change to consider. This is not natural selection per se, although it could still be a factor. 
In our unfallen world, as people spread out according to God's command, they would have become disconnected from one another. The existence of small, isolated pockets of humans is all we need to generate differences among people. Inbreeding leads to genetic drift, which leads to the loss of diversity, which leads to people in one place looking different from people in other places. I explained this in another article titled Inbreeding and the Origin of Races, using a biblical example, the family tree of the twelve tribes of Israel. Also, since there are several ways to generate new diversity, as explained already, it might be possible that some people are born with the ability to live at very high altitudes or to tolerate very dry desert conditions, or to live in polar regions, even if these abilities are not in Adam and Eve. It is true that people can migrate away from environments they do not like, so genes could be sorted according to individual preference. It's also true that a couple that really likes cold weather, for example, might migrate far to the north or south. The populations that derive from these people would not be an example of natural selection because there was no selection. All the people derive from all the people who first arrived in the area. However, given that there is natural variability from one human to another, and given that some people might thrive in a certain environment while others only tolerate it, it is quite conceivable that some people would have more children than others in a given environment. This is called differential reproduction. Of course, humans are smart, and we overcome environmental difficulties easily. The person who does not like cold weather can always put on more clothes, for example. Thus, it is hard to envision natural selection operating on humans without death and struggle. Yet it is easy to imagine change occurring as people spread on the face of the planet and become isolated from one another, at least initially. There has been a lot of debate about natural selection within creationist circles over the past several years. Randy Gulliaz's continuous environmental tracking model, which focuses greatly on epigenetics, explains how organisms are designed to track their environment and then adapt to those environmental conditions. This engineering approach is brilliant, and I wish more of us could throw off the evolutionary baggage that we are laden with in school and start thinking more from a design perspective. However, he also describes natural selection as death-driven scenarios where survival and reproduction are highly dependent on luck and subsequent death-driven fractionation. I disagree strongly with these definitions, as do many others. But if natural selection is properly defined as differential reproduction, rather than death-driven fractionation, it would have still existed in the world even if sin and suffering had not entered in. Individual choice does not always apply as in the oak tree example. There's no tracking of the environment for trees. They cannot move and acorns do not purposefully roll away from environments they do not like. While it is theoretically possible that environmentally induced epigenetic factors might be included in the acorns, the amount of changes is limited to the set of genes those acorns inherited from the parent trees. Also, things change after the fall of man. Everything started to decay. Death came roaring in. The environment sometimes changed radically, for example the pre-flood and the post-flood worlds. Organisms could no longer track the environment with any sort of perfection. Think about all those animals living in Siberia near the end of the Ice Age. Siberia was not what most people think. Yes, it was cold, but no, it wasn't as cold as it is today. A thriving ecosystem of plants and animals lived in places where they cannot live today. What happened when the environment suddenly got a lot colder? 
The field mice, caribou, beavers, and woolly mammoths living in the far north did not have the ability to choose. They could not walk out of Siberia and would not have known which direction to go if they had tried. This is why they died. From an engineering and design perspective, the environmental changes exceeded the design specifications of those animals. In these cases, continuous environmental tracking breaks down, as happened across a vast swath of terrain as the Ice Age ended. In the end, there is no conflict between continuous environmental tracking and natural selection, where terms are properly defined. Both mechanisms would still operate in an unfallen world and both would still operate in a fallen world. Most cases would not be either or, but both and. There are cases where environmental tracking applies directly, but this cannot explain everything. For many species are unable to move, for instance trees, or unable to move faster than the environments move them. For example, bacteria or plankton caught up in the ocean current. Yet continuous environmental tracking and natural selection both go into overdrive after the fall. Organismal tracking in response to environmental cues suddenly become very important because death might be the result of an incorrect response. So, what have we learned? Natural selection should be a part of any creation model. It is not proof of evolution. It is not even good support for evolution. And natural selection is not a threat to the Bible or to biblical history. So it is a factor that would have been at play if struggle had not entered the world but its importance only increased when it did. Many people have been misled into thinking that the Genesis account of creation is not actual history, but is just some sort of theological argument. If you're stuck on the authenticity of the book of Genesis's history or know someone who is, a great booklet to read is 15 Reasons to Take Genesis as History. This small book succinctly shows us how to believe in the inspiration of scripture and have no intellectually honest choice but to take Genesis as straightforward literal events, just as Jesus did. So this quick read powerfully challenges one of the major problems in the church today that affects the authority of the entire Bible. You should get it, read it, and give it to your pastor or particularly anyone contemplating theological training. It could save them from getting derailed by some of the misleading arguments common in theological academia. 15 Reasons to Take Genesis as History is available from the store at creation.com. I am Joseph Darnell. For everyone at CMI This Side of Paradise, thanks for listening. <laughs>